And that is all. The only other announcement, I didn't, we didn't make a slide for it, but you see in the bulletin that um, GMS school board member, we have one representative from our church. We're allowed to have one that serves on the school board. Billy has been serving on that for three years, um, and his term was up, and Joan has great, gratefully, we're grateful that she has agreed to serve on the school board. So she started in January, just had her first meeting this week, I think, so... Um, thank you, Billy, for your service on that, and Joan for being willing to serve. Well, we are going back to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't been with us in a while, you might know not know we were ever in it, because the last time we were in a Ecclesiastes, I think, was October. Um, so it's been a little while. Um, but as we look at chapter 6 this morning, you're going to notice a lot of the themes that we have been seeing. And if you're tired of hearing these themes, let me encourage you. This is really the the last time we are thinking about some of the things that have been repeated through chapters 1 through 5. Chapter 6 is kind of a transition to the end of the book. I'm sure we'll still hear some of those same themes, but the theme of the vanity of wealth uh, wealth, wisdom, and work. You'll hear those again this morning. We'll kind of leave behind this morning, but we're going to hear it one more time, um, and I think it's good for us to hear it uh, one more time. Um, in my commentary, I don't remember who it was, one of the, one of the commentaries um, said that chapter 6 is one of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible. So now that you've heard that exciting introduction, let's read it. And if I didn't say this, the kids can be dismissed for nursery. I can't remember if I said that or not, but... Follow along in your Bibles as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous, a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness is its name covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's stop and ask for the Lord's help before we continue. Father, you have kept this chapter in this book in your word for us. Father, not only have we seen 
Now, do we, do we, do we believe that the writing of this is inspired, Father? We can't help but attest to the fact that you have orchestrated your sovereign care over your word to keep your word for us and to bring it to us to this day. So, Father, we want to understand it. We want to apply it to our lives. We want to be revealed to us what it is that you have written for us. So help us in this through your spirit. Shape us more into the image of Christ. For this world desperately needs to see that image. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in his book, Living on the Ragged Edge, Charles or Chuck Swindoll talks about walking through a gallery in downtown Dallas, Texas, a gallery of the portrait painter Dimitri Vale. Dimitri Swindell says is uh, one of those painters who who paints pictures that look so real that the that you wonder if they aren't in fact portraits, which uh, for me is the, the the really artistic work. It's the art I enjoy. I don't enjoy the art where you got to squint and kind of got to stand on your head or kind of use your imagination to try to understand what in the world you are looking at. I like the ones that you can tell exactly what you're looking at, and that's how Dimitri painted. He was a realistic painter. And, and in his this art gallery, there were paintings of, of, of famous figures that were true to life. And as Swindoll walked through the, the gallery, there were faces he recognized. There were famous movie stars. There were famous athletes, television personalities, well-known uh, politicians. But then he got to a painting of a face that he did not recognize. This painting didn't have a nameplate on it either, uh, signifying who it was. And try as he might to connect the face with a name, uh, Swindoll just couldn't do it. So he asked the nearby tour guide who this was a painting of. And Chuck Swindoll writes of the guide, she smiled and in a soft Texas draw replied, I'm often asked about this one. Folks are always surprised to know that this is a self-portrait of the, arf- of the artist, Mr. Vale himself. As we talked briefly, I told her that I too was surprised, having never met the man. I supposed, I expected him to be as colorful as his brush. Anyone that gifted, it seems, should be rather exciting in appearance, and perhaps even a touch of flair. No, not at all, she responded. The truth is, he looks exactly like this painting. It's almost as if it were an enlarged photograph. Well, the book that that story comes from is a somewhat loose commentary by Charles Swindoll on on this book that we're studying, the book of Ecclesiastes. And he shares that story because in his opinion, uh, what we have in chapter 6 is what he saw there in that art gallery, a self-portrait, an enlarged photograph of the author. The author of Ecclesiastes, who Swindoll sees as Solomon, has pointed out all the problems he's seen in the world around him. All its vanity, all its emptiness, all its meaningless. The way the world is nothing but a mist. But now here in chapter 6, he stops and he looks in the mirror. And he shows us that the vanity isn't just out there, but it's in here. It's in him. It's in his heart. In verse 2, the author of Ecclesiastes says that he sees a man to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and honor. Those three words, wealth, possessions, and honor, are the exact same words used in Second Chronicles chapter 1, where it describes the very things that God gifted Solomon. Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 11 through 12, God answered Solomon and said, Because it was in your heart, after God asked Solomon, ask for whatever you wish, 
And Solomon asked, and he said, because it was in your heart and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, and honor, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge, I will also give you riches or wealth, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. Now, if you remember from our study, my understanding of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon is not the author, but he is the main character. After reading lots of different opinions and commentaries of people who know more than I do, it it seemed obvious that this was probably written after um, the time of Solomon with some of the language and some of the things that are said in here. However, I think that the one writing this, who if we look in chapter 12, we see it's his father talking to his son. I think the one writing this is holding up a person like Solomon, perhaps Solomon himself, someone who had everything the world had to offer. And he says, son, look at this man. And look at how empty he is. That's such an important message for our kids, for us as parents, for us as an older generation wanting to entrust something to the next generation. So many of us can get caught up in selling the empty promises of the American dream, which in many ways is wealth, possessions, and honor. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes warns us that the dream you will actually be selling them is a nightmare. Because it never lives up to its promises. And he invites us in chapter 6 to to stop and take a hard look into the eyes of the man who had it all, but who had nothing at all. The man who received everything the American dream promises to give, uh, who had had wealth. Uh, No one was wealthier than Solomon. Possessions. You want it, he had it. In honor. He was the king. People came from far and wide to see this King Solomon, to see his wealth, to marvel at his kingdom, and to sit under his wisdom. Wealth, possessions, and honor, he had it in abundance. But look at this picture in chapter 6, and what do you see? Again, that commentary said this is the bleakest chapter in all the Bible. You see emptiness. For all the wealth, possessions, and honor he had, what he doesn't have drowns out all of those things. Because as you look at the enlarged photograph of Solomon, you don't see what he has, but you see what he does not have. And you see a man who does not have rest. You know, what we want to do with all of our, our wealth and why we want to acquire all these things is so we can finally be at rest. And this man is not able to find rest. We find a man who is never satisfied with life's good things. He has them, but he's not satisfied. And a man who never is able to enjoy the life he's given in verse 2. God's given him all these things, but God withheld that one thing, the most important thing, the ability to enjoy them. He does not have that. Is that not a picture we see as we look around the world today? Isn't that what the pursuit of the American dream has left us with? Writing in the Wall Street Journal, Jonathan Clements uh, writes, and I realize up there I forgot to fill in the date. I have it written on my desk in the back, but I made this slide at home, and I put a note there to finish it, and I did it. But it's from the Wall Street Journal sometime in May, some year, many years, or a few years ago. And Jonathan Clements writes, We have life and we have liberty, but the pursuit of happiness is not going so well. 
We constantly hanker after fancier cars and fatter paychecks. And initially those things or such things boost our happiness. But the glow of satisfaction quickly fades. And soon we are yearning for something else. Clements, Clements see what, sees what Solomon sees as he looks in the mirror. Only Clements is not looking at Solomon. He is looking at us. He's looking at the American people who have bought into the American dream but have wound up without rest, satisfaction, and enjoyment. In Ecclesiastes 6, 6 there, are, there are three things that we notice, and they relate to those three things I just mentioned. There's three things that we notice in this self-portrait that puts this emptiness on display. Three things that Solomon can't find. And before you, if you take notes and write down the headlines, don't write these down because they're going to change a little bit. But three things he can't find, and that is the enjoyment of his riches, the satisfaction of his desires, and the answers to his questions. Only in chapter 6, they're put in the negative. And it's that what we see in these verses are unenjoyed riches, unsatisfied desires, and unanswered questions. Unenjoyed riches, unsatisfied desires, and unanswered questions. First in verses 1 through 6, we see unenjoyed riches. Riches that are not enjoyed or even not able to be enjoyed by the one who has them. Back in October, in the last passage we looked at, and you can look just up above chapter 6 in your Bibles, in chapter 5, the preacher pointed us to a laborer. He pointed us to someone who toiled under the sun, but who was able to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in his toil. He, he might not have had much, but what he had, he enjoyed. And, and he says in verse 19 that everyone to whom... God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God. But now in chapter 6, he tells us that that gift from God is a rare gift. It's not something that God gives, apparently, to everyone. But what is more often the case is that God withholds that. What lies heavy on mankind, verse 1 says, which means what is frequent among the human race. NASB says what is prevalent. What I see everywhere is a very different picture in verse 2. That God gives wealth, uh, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. Martin Luther says this is a description of a man who lacks nothing for a happy life, but yet he does not have one. He lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet he desires nothing of what he has. And we would have to agree with the preacher, wouldn't we, that this is a prevalent problem of the world we live in. It's frequent, but it's something that lies heavy on humanity. It's particularly American society. It lies heavy on it. This is a weight. It is a cloud that overshadows our nation. And he describes it as a vanity. He describes it as a weight. And then in verse 3, he describes it as a grievous evil. Or other translations uh, say that it is a sickening tragedy. It is a, it is a severe affliction. Bartholomew says it is a malignant disease. Very vivid language that he uses. Solomon, or the author, the the preacher, says this just disgusts him as he looks around the world. 
He then goes on to compare it to something else that we reg- that we consider a tragedy, that we readily admit is a tragedy, one of the greatest tragedies, and that is that of a of a miscarriage, or a stillborn child in verses three through five, a child who never sees the light of day. The preacher says we readily admit that this is a tragedy, and it is a tragedy. Many of you have lived through such a tragedy. You've experienced the, the pain of this loss of a child he describes in verse 4 as coming in vanity, coming in emptiness. The delivery of this child does not produce the life that it was intended to deliver. And this child, it leaves in darkness. It, it dies never having seen the light of day. And even, he says, its name is covered in darkness. In the days of Ecclesiastes, and, and, and even today into some, in some places, uh, Jews often did not name stillborn children as and they did that as an attempt to dull the pain for the parents, to, to dull them of the pain by not giving the, the miscarried child, the stillborn child, a, a name. But even when the child is given a name, the identity of that child is still hidden in darkness. What would she have been like? What would his personality have been? The darkness of death keeps this child from being known by the world. And in verse 5 says that it keeps the world from being known by this child. Again, what a tragedy. Throughout the Bible, a miscarriage is often used to describe one of the most tragic events that we can experience on earth. But the preacher says, as tragic as a stillborn child is, this child has something that so many never have. This child has rest. The preacher says, picture our unhappy man of, of verse 2. A man who has wealth, possessions, and honor, and everything that his heart desires. And, and let's add to that man, let's add to him lots of kids in a long life. Two of the signs of God's blessing in your life, if you were, uh, you see it in the Psalms. Two of the signs of God's blessings is that you had lots of kids and you lived lots of years. And the preacher says, well, let's go to the extreme. Let's, let's give this kid, a, this man, a hundred children and two thousand years of life. He lives twice the time of Methuselah. And he has all that he ever desires. He, he, he has everything he could ever want. But yet he never enjoys any of it. His soul is never satisfied. And at the end of his life, though he has a hundred kids, Verse, I don't think I have it on the screen. But verse verse 3 says he has no burial. He has no one to dig a grave for him. No one to come and attend his funeral. He, he dies in darkness. That, the preacher says, is a tragedy. But yet, he says, it's a frequency. I see it everywhere. I see it lies heavy on mankind. No one is enjoying the life they have, even if they have everything they ever wanted. There's the next thing we see in verses 7 through 9. We go from unenjoyed, uh, un- unenjoyed, you know what the word is, you probably wrote it down. Unenjoyed riches, there we go. I, that, I was going to say unenjoyed wealth, unenjoyed riches, unenjoyed possessions. And you have unsatisfied desires. From the outward, we go to the inward. Verses 7 through 9. Unsatisfied desires. 
Part of what causes the abundance of possessions in verse 2 is that as much as we have, we never have quite enough. Verse 6 says that we work all day and we spend all of our time toiling for our mouth. Yet our appetite is never satisfied. And this thing's going to crash on me right now. And our appetite is never satisfied. You work to eat, but then you're hungry again and you have to, to work again. You know, as, as a parent of five kids, it seems like we go to, we go to BJ's and we come home with two huge carts of food and we, we spend a lot of money on it and then we turn around and we look at the pantry and it's empty before we know it again and we gotta work more to go back to BJ's to fill two carts full again. But more than just the appetite of our, our stomachs, the appetite of our desires. We constantly want more which means we constantly have to work to acquire more. Go back to that quote from the Wall Street Journal. The glow of satisfaction quickly fades and soon we are yearning for something else. And one of my guilty pleasures is sports radio. I love listening to sports talk shows. Often I, I'll have the, my earbuds in while I'm doing the dishes at night, listening to that morning's edition of, of ESPN talk shows. And this week I was listening to Mike Greenberg talk about early in his career being in the Bulls locker room after they had won the, their third title in the early 90s, the first of their two repeats, or third, their two three-peats. That's something that was rarely seen in sports, for a team to win three championships in a row. And the last of those championships had been won in dramatic fashion, with John Paxson making a three-pointer with less than five seconds in the game to put the Bulls ahead of Charles Barkley's sons, 99-98, to to win the game. And Greenberg, who was a young journalist at that time in the Chicago area, he talks about being in the locker room after that win and the champagne is being sprayed everywhere and everyone's dancing and celebrating and he goes and he finds Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause was the general manager who put this team together. He was the mastermind behind it all. It all, And he asks him, Greenberg says, Jerry, how does this feel? What thoughts are going through your mind right now? Jerry's answer, I feel like I'm behind. The draft is next week. All the other teams have gotten a head start on us in their off-season preparation. I feel like I'm behind. Dripping with champagne, surrounded with success, standing on the peak of accomplishing what few people have ever accomplished. How do you feel? I feel like i got to do more to catch up. Is that not a picture of what is repeated over and over again throughout the world and throughout our lives? If you've seen the movie, The Greatest Showman, what went through my mind this week and and, and through my mind, some of the same things have been going through my mind throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, but is that scene in The Greatest Showman where the opera singer is belting out, and I'm not going to belt it out, I'll spare you from that, but belting out, it's never enough, never, never, never enough. It's never enough, is it? If we let our desires control us, if we let our desires run the show, which we have to admit we do a little too often, we find that we're never satisfied. Our appetites, he says in verse 9, are constantly wandering, constantly on the lookout for more, always traveling, 
but never arriving. You know that we have that saying, enjoy the journey. It's not about a destination. It's about a journey. But unfortunately, the journey of always having our desires wandering is a miserable journey. And we have bought into that always traveling, always journeying, never arriving when it comes to being satisfied. One commentator said, desire is a tramp, never content to stay at home. Paul warns us in 1 Timothy that not only does this constant desire for more ruin our earthly lives, but it puts our eternal lives in danger. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10 through 10, Those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away. They've followed their wandering appetites and they have wandered away from the faith. And they have pierced themselves with many pangs. Jesus warns us, warns us of this too when he warned that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, the, the constant wandering or wanting of more, you'll be satisfied when... The deceitfulness of riches, the lies they sell us, choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Think about all the things that the Bible promises that the word does in our lives. It never does those things. It never bears fruit. It never bears fruit. It never bears the fruit of salvation in our lives because we are too caught up in chasing after the deceitfulness of riches. Kent Hughes illustrates this point by pointing to the excavations that were made at the city of Pompeii. And he says, when Vesuvius erupted and Pompeii was buried, many people perished uh, with their body shapes and postures and even in some instances their facial expressions forever preserved in volcanic ash. He points to one woman whose her feet were pointed in the direction of the city gate, headed for safety. Yet her face was turned back to look at something else. And her arms were reaching for something that was just outside of her grasp. Grasping for a prize, which too was preserved, a bag of beautiful pearls. And he says, Kent Hughes says, this is the temptation for all of us to turn from life to death by reaching for something we think will satisfy us. That is such a vivid picture of so many in the world, but so many in the church. We, we want to keep our feet towards safety. We want to head for the city gates, but we want to turn around and just grasp for a little more. Preacher says no one spared from this temptation. In verse 8, the two questions were expected to answer none. There's, there's no advantage of being wise. We still experience this where we're still unsatisfied. We've gained all this wisdom, but yet it still doesn't satisfy. There's no there's no advantage of knowing how to conduct yourself among the living when it comes to this, because even if we know how to conduct ourselves among the living as a poor person, you're, you're still wasting away from the constant desire of more. It lies heavy. It's everywhere. It's prevalent on mankind. In his commentary, Warren Worsby says a century ago when the United States was starting to experience prosperity and expansion, the American naturalist Henry David Thoreau warned that men were devising improved means to unimproved ends. Improved means how we're going to get there, but we're still arriving at the decaying, empty destination we were always headed for. 
In other words, we might be wiser, we might have more technology, we might have more resources, better ways of doing things, but we're still ending up at the same place. We are still unsatisfied. And Worsby goes on to say, imagine if Thoreau saw our world today. We have our smartphones, we have our technology that's able to send our voices around the world, but do we really have anything worth saying? We feel more connected than ever with social media, but we are more empty and lonely than we've ever been. Improved means to unimproved ends. We've tried to find a solution without ever addressing the root problem, and that is that our desires are constantly wandering. St. Augustine tells us that the solution to our problems now is a solution to the problems that Thoreau saw a hundred years ago and the same solution to the problems when Augustine lived in the first century. And it's a solution that cannot be solved by a smartphone. It can't be solved by coast-to-coast travel. It can't be fixed by more entertainment, by adding another streaming service to your television package or another zero to the end of your bank account. But the only solution is one that addresses the real problem. And that is that if our wandering hearts and our wandering desires finally find themselves at rest in the only place where they can rest, and that is in Thee. Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. I know I've shared that quote at least once in our study of Ecclesiastes, but it is such a needed reminder for us. More stuff will not solve our problem. A better job will not, will not fill our void. A new relationship will not satisfy it. If you are not satisfied now, you will not be satisfied then. The only way our appetites will be satisfied is if we find our rest in God. You know, we read that opening in, in verse 2, that God does not give him the power to enjoy them, and that is the greatest gift that God has given humanity. Because we, we, we empty out all other resources and find that the only place that can satisfy us is God. He has withheld that for us so that we might be directed to Him. If we have found that all He is really, that if we have found that He is all we really need, all that we would desire will be found in Him. All the other things in this chapter that we've, we see, wealth, possessions, honor, family, long years, wisdom, knowing how to conduct ourselves in this world, all of those things can be great things. All of those things can enrich our lives in many ways. All of those things are gifts from God. But if those good things become God things, if those good things become our idols, if they become the things that we look to for satisfaction, if they become the things we look to for fulfillment, for meaning, for purpose, for our identity, for who I am. If I can just post this picture on social media behind this car or, or with my family looking like this or on this vacation, if they become the way we want to show ourselves and reveal ourselves, then all they can do is increase the emptiness in our lives. And that leads to the last section of this passage. After trying to do everything he can to fill the void in his life with all of those other things, all the preacher has to do is, has left to do really, is lift his head to the skies. And unfortunately, he does not look to God for satisfaction, but instead he shakes his fist at God. Because all he has left is unanswered questions. Unanswered questions. Verse 10, verses 10 through 12. In the second half of those verses, in that closing section, you see a series of questions. 
the closing section, the, verses 11 and 12. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage is that to man? What does it matter if we use more words? All it does is increase our vanity and gives us no advantage. For, for how, for who knows what is good for man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he possesses or passes like a shadow? I've tried everything that I thought would be good and I've ended up empty. Who knows what it is that is actually good for man while we live this short life? And who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? We don't, we don't know what comes next. And this is the preacher of Ecclesiastes view as he looks around the, the world under the sun. But really, all of these unanswered questions come from the frustration that the preacher expresses in verse 10. A frustration that perhaps you have experienced from time to time in your life. The frustration that God is sovereign and we are not. God is sovereign and we are not. That's what the preacher is saying in verse 10. First, he says that God is sovereign. He has named everything already. To name something is to give authority and have authority over it. And the preacher says that life is under the authority of one who has named it. The one he says later in the verse that is stronger than he is. This stronger one is God. He is the one who rules and reigns. And the preacher acknowledges God's sovereignty. But he doesn't acknowledge in a way that brings his, brings himself comfort. I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon that said, God's sovereignty is like a pillow for the, for the believer to rest his head on at night. But it's not a pillow for the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Instead, it's something that fills him with angst and anger. The preacher acknowledges God's sovereignty, but he acknowledges it in frustration. Because while God is sovereign, the preacher realizes that he is not. It is known what is in man. That word man is the same word, Hebrew word, that is used in Genesis chapter 2, where God made man and named him man, which comes from the word Adam. And that word Adam is just a slightly different, in the original Hebrew, the words are just, the letters are just slightly different from the word dust. Because God made man out of dust. The name man, the name Adam is, is not a name that signifies sovereignty. It's not a name that signifies strength, but it is a name and identity that signifies weakness. Out of the dust man was made and to dust man is headed, Genesis chapter 2 and 3 say. And this leads the preacher to frustration because God is sovereign and he is not. Who is able to dispute with him, he says. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Nothing I say matters or works. C.S. Lewis once said in his book, The the Problem of Pain, is that to argue with God is to argue with the very power that makes it possible to argue at all. Kind of expressing. What's the point of arguing when I'm arguing with the one who has given me the very ability to argue in the first place? Arguing with God is a pointless venture. God is the potter, we are the clay, and how can clay argue with the maker? Those verses that I'm pulling those ideas from are are verses of comfort and invoke are meant to bring peace into our lives, but for many and for this preacher at this point in his life, it's it's not peace, but it's angst. Our unsovereignty also leaves us not knowing exactly what to do in many situations. Or exactly what will come next. 
The preacher, for all his wisdom, is left with many, un- many questions unanswered. And this leaves him with frustration. But what is the solution to this frustration? The same, the solution to this frustration is the same solution we have seen throughout all the sections of chapter 6. The solution to a world that is full of those who aren't able to enjoy their riches. The cure for a culture that lives with unsatisfied desires. It's the same solution for our unanswered questions. It might sound simple. Maybe it sounds too simple. Maybe in some ways it even sounds insensitive. But the solution the Bible gives us time and time again is contentment. Be content. When it comes to wealth and possessions, be content with what you have. But when it comes to our unanswered questions, the solution is to be content with what you know. One of the verses that helped me early on in my Christian life as I tried to wrestle with the issue of unanswered questions was Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And I love that verse because, first of all, it tells us that there will be some unanswered questions in our lives. There will be some things that we don't ever have the answers to. There are things that are the secret things of the Lord. The answer to some of our why questions, the understandings of why things happen, when and how they do. Those secret things, they belong to the Lord. But there are things that He has revealed. And in fact, for us, in looking back on Moses writing these things, we have so much more revealed than Moses had revealed. Uh, We actually understand things that he wrote that he didn't understand because we see the fulfillment of them in Jesus. God has revealed so much to us. But not only that, he has revealed to us enough. He has revealed to us enough. One of the things that we believe about the Bible is that not only is it true, not only is it inspired, not only is it breathed out by God, but we believe that it is sufficient. And I think that is one of the things we lack right now in our understanding of the Bible. The belief that the Bible is enough. The belief that the Bible is sufficient. First Peter 2, or 1, 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellency. He has revealed to us all that we need to know. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want to know more, that we don't want to have all of our questions answered, but God has given us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. And the rest, those secret things, we can leave them in the hands of the Lord. This week I was reminded of a poem that many of you are probably familiar with. It's called the Tapestry Poem. It has other names, but that was one of the titles I found And it describes our lives as a tapestry, a piece of art where a picture or a design is weaved into a cloth. But the only problem with a tapestry is you can only see that design. You can only see that picture from the one side. And if you were to go and look on the other side of a tapestry, it would be a scene of chaos and confusion. You would see see colors going this way and that. You would see knots where, where the threads have been tied. You might see a few loose ends. And the poem says that in this life, often all we see is the chaotic side. But one day we will see the other side, the picture that God has been weaving. 
The poem says, and that might be too small for you to read, but it says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oftentimes he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he has planned. This new, this last stanza might not be original. It might be a new one, but I, lo- I love this last stanza. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemns. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. I read that poem in a, actually in that commentary by Swindoll, but the, Swindoll didn't give the author, and so I, I went searching online for who wrote this poem, and I realized why it didn't give the author, and it's because I found it attributed to a lot of authors. It was attributed to Benjamin Franklin, Corey Ten Boom, most played it safe and just said author unknown. But as I searched for it on Google, the first site that popped in, I just typed in those first lines of the poem. The first line, site that popped up on the search engine was the blog of a young lady, really a young girl by the age of 17 by the name of Leah. The blog was actually written by her mom. And her, her mom wrote this from her daughter's hospital room. Before she put the poem, she wrote this. She said, Leah had some notebooks in which she wrote out, poem, in which she wrote out poems. Bible verses and sayings that she found particularly encouraging. We were due to fly home to Ireland from Bristol on Sunday, 20, Sunday the 27th of October 2013. On Monday 21st of October, Leah was found to have a clot in a blood vessel and was admitted yet again to cubicle four on the bone marrow transplant unit. This is what she transcribed from the internet into her notebook as she sat in oncology day beds waiting to be Admitted, my life is but a weaving. She continued on. I looked at the dates, and this blog was typed by her mom on February 20th, 2014. Leah died one month earlier on January 16th. She never came home from that hospital. Now, I have no clue who this young girl was, but I spent a good 20 to 30 minutes at least on Thursday looking through her blog reading her posts, looking at her pictures, and crying many tears for this one who was taken from this world way too soon. But you know what I saw on that blog? From beginning to end. He knows. He loves. He cares. Nothing can this truth dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Saw the picture of someone who did not have the answers to all her questions. And a mom, or she's from Ireland, so a mom, who was typing this blog up, who didn't have the answers to all her questions. And was still dealing with the pain and the loss of her little girl. And here's the picture the mom put on the bottom of that blog. The back of a tapestry. And it's probably how her life felt at that moment. But yet this mom trusted and this young lady trusted that God was weaving a beautiful picture through it all. And though they did not know, he knew and he loved and he cared. And that was enough for them. And in that, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us 
that she had and they had what few in this world had. Despite their pain, despite their loss, despite their unanswered questions, they had loss. They, they had rest. People were spending millions to try to find that and not finding it. But they had rest. And where can that rest be found? It cannot be found in riches. It cannot be found in wealth. It cannot be found in honor or fame. It cannot be found in the constant pursuit of desire. It cannot be found even in having all of our answered, all of our questions answered. The only place it can be found is in God. Our hearts will not be at rest until they are at rest in Him. And when they are at rest in Him, they can stay at rest even in the midst of anything else, even our unanswered questions. Paul says, I have learned the secret, and it is a secret, and I have learned the secret of being content in any and all circumstances. How? Because I can do all things in Christ. That's the context of that verse. The context of that verse is not that you can leap over mountains and, and do anything you want. The content is, or the context is that you in Christ, when your heart is at rest in Christ, you can be in content in anything God brings in your path. When Christ is all we want, we have everything that we could ever want. But without Christ, without Christ, you will always be in want. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, even though there's many parts of your word that we read and we just really wish we didn't have to. We read because, and as we read them, we we don't want to because they expose to us the reality that we kind of like to ignore. The reality we see in the world, but God, the reality we see in our hearts. Father, if we're honest, we we have to admit that we are often, uh, this is not just a portrait of Solomon or the preacher, but it's a portrait of us. You've given us so much, but yet we aren't content. We aren't at rest. We aren't at peace. We aren't trusting and, and believing, Father, that you really have given us all we need. So, Father, as we see ourselves exposed, Father, It does the best thing for us because it points us to the great solution that you have provided. And that is to be at rest in Jesus. To know that it is finished. That he accomplished all that we need to have in our lives, Father, through the cross. Salvation. Not only salvation someday, Father, but salvation right now. We are freed uh, from the slavery to idols and looking to these to the things in this world for satisfaction. We're freed from that. The bondage has, has been broken. But, Father, also the promise that one day we will be free and away from those things that reach out and try to bind us again. And we long for that day, Father. Give us grace as we walk steadfastly towards that day, Father. Give us strength. Give us hope. Give us peace. And give us joy. God, when we can be at rest in you, Father, we see that we can, we can enjoy the things of this world like the world cannot enjoy. We, we can enjoy relationships, even the, the stuff, Father. We can, we can enjoy them as gifts from you, Father, in ways that the world can't because we don't expect from them things that they can't give. 
So, Father, may we be people of joy in these days. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me invite you to stand. John Warfel is not here to to lead a closing song. I, I had one, but I had a feeling I might be a little long. So let me send you out with these words from 1 Corinthians. I really should have them memorized, but I just don't trust myself. They're really not that complicated. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the relationship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. You are dismissed.